0: Have you heard? Have you heard?
1: Have you heard? Have you heard? Have you heard? Have you heard?
0: heard? Welcome to Have You Heard. I'm Jennifer Berkshire. My co host Jack Schneider is off doing whatever academics do during the summer months, and that means that I'm free to explore some of my very favorite topics. Don't say I didn't warn you. Now, a couple of months ago, there was an essay in The Atlantic by hedge funder Nick Hanauer about what he defined as educationism, the belief embraced with great fervor among the billionaire class that poverty and rising inequality in this country are caused by the failures of our public schools. Fix the schools and voila, we get our middle class back." Hanauer told his brethren that he was giving up on educationism, and they should too, and that if they really wanted to do something about low wages, they should do something about, well, low wages. It was a great essay. You should read it if you haven't already, and yet I came away wanting more. I wanted an explanation of the thinking and the theories behind educationism, and since this is my podcast, at least for now, that is our topic today. I reached out to one of my very favorite economists. His name is Marshall Steinbaum. You may know him from Twitter, where he does daily battle against lazy economic thinking. Marshall is very focused these days on one measurable impact of educationism, the huge amount of debt that students have amassed in hopes of landing a job. As economists would say, these students are investing in their human capital, and that's where we're starting today. Marshall, please begin.
2: Sure. So human capital theory... Uh, is an economic theory about who gets what in life in general and specifically in the labor market. Uh, it developed through the work of a couple of prominent labor economists in the uh, late fifties and early sixties, Jacob Mincer and Gary Becker, and they basically uh, proposed their theory that uh, people are paid in the labor market according to the value of the capital they possess. So. Economics had a long history of dividing capital from labor, and uh, the idea that capital earns its return based on its productivity uh, in the economy was a long-standing theory before that, and the innovation of Mincer, and especially Becker, in articulating the theory of human capital is that uh, what uh, ideas, what skills uh, human laborers people bring into the labor market um, can be analyzed by economists in exactly the same way that productive capital can be analyzed.
0: So I know what you're thinking. Is Marshall talking about the Jacob Minzer as in the Minzer regression? Also, what does any of this have to do with education? And is the whole episode going to be this, well, challenging? The answers would be yes, everything, and don't worry. So, Marshall, keep going, and I want you to just sum up for us how human capital theory really sort of sets the stage for the whole way we think about education today.
2: If you think that uh, individuals who are being educated are investing in their future skills, and as a result of that education, their skills go up, and therefore their earnings go up, um, it starts to make sense to think that uh, it might be worth it for individuals to say, for example, take on student debt in order to uh, invest in their earnings during their um, uh, years in higher education um, because that debt will pay itself off more or less through uh, increasing the amount of earnings that they're able to obtain.
0: Now, you probably remember a few years back when the value-added movement swept the land. Teachers were going to be held accountable for student test score growth if the scores went up, That's how we would know the teachers were good. President Obama and his Secretary of Education, Arne Duncan, were huge fans of this approach. They really believed that the answer to our collective economic woes was more highly effective teachers as measured by student test score growth. Here's a little clip to refresh our memories.
1: The question is, who who are we lifting up? Who are we promoting? Who are we saying is important? So I am 110 percent behind our teachers. But all, all I'm asking in return, as a President, as a, pre- uh, as a parent, and as a citizen, is some measure of accountability. So. Even as we applaud teachers for their hard work, we've got to make sure that we're seeing results in the classroom. If if we're not seeing results in the classroom, then let's work with teachers to help them become more effective. If that doesn't work, let's find the right teacher for that classroom.
0: You no, Obama and Duncan, to my knowledge, never talked about human capital theory. Instead, they talked about whether teachers were succeeding in preparing their young charges for college and career.
2: Um, I think in some ways that's like the kind of crazy end game of the human capital theory because there you're not only saying that um, uh, students are uh, investing in their skills, say when they're in kindergarten and those skills will pay off in the labor market, uh, but teachers can be evaluated on the basis of the skills that... Uh, kindergartners develop and can th- and can then be measured in the labor market I mean that's the the, the essential underlying theory behind the value-added um, metric of uh, you know for teacher effectiveness so I would say there I you know the reason why I would view that as kind of a, a, a extreme devolution um, is because it not only sort of individualizes labor market outcomes for the people who experience the, those outcomes but it then takes that one step further and um, ties those outcomes to their teacher. The the implication is that what the teacher is there to do is impart the skills that, when the students later enter the, the labor market, are then paid off. Um, it is a sort of comprehensive theory of how economic outcomes are determined, and as far as I'm concerned, every single step of that theory uh, is false.
0: Marshall has been thinking a lot about how human capital theory has shaped the way we view higher education. Specifically, this whole idea that young people are supposed to invest tons of money to acquire the quote-unquote right skills and that the compensation will follow. Of course, as tuition has gone up and up, students have accumulated more and more debt, a burden that falls the heaviest on racial minorities. Marshall wrote a fantastic piece a couple of years ago making the case for what he calls a Brown v. Board of Education for higher ed. And one of the really interesting things he Points out is that we haven't always viewed higher ed as a product to be purchased by individuals who are investing in their own human capital. In fact, there was a point in time where things looked like they were going to shake out very differently.
2: In the post war era, there was a understanding that the expansion of higher education uh, was a uh, progressive policy for the development of the American economy and American society, and that this was a function that the government should undertake. Um, In the pre-war era, we had uh, what's called the high school movement that made uh, secondary education more or less universal, and that was a government policy, um, but it was not a federal policy, not until Brown v. Board of Ed. So we had the uh, expansion of secondary education to the majority of the population, other than to uh, black students in the South. Brown v. Board of Ed was the federalization and civil rights if you will, of the high school movement. Um, that is, it uh, demanded and uh, recognized that uh, black students should not be excluded from universal secondary education on the basis of race. That's the, the, the essential uh, uh, thrust of Brown v. Board of Ed in the context of the history of education. Um, and after that, in the post-war era, there was a widespread understanding that the next step was to universalize higher education. So uh, early, the pre the, the history of American higher education up until then had been uh, basically an elite uh, function, um, certainly in respect to the so-called oldest, the, the oldest universities in the country and even with you know what was the expansion of the uh, land-grant colleges in the uh, 19th century, um, higher education was not viewed as something that the vast majority of uh, American people would ever come into contact with.
0: California led the way, there was an actual master plan for California higher education. And the whole idea was to create a more or less universal public higher education system. There were research universities, teaching colleges, community colleges. And if you graduated from high school and wanted higher education, there was somewhere in that system for you. And it was the government's responsibility to provide that to you. So, Marshall, what went so wrong? How did we end up moving from this brief moment where higher ed was going to be a universal public good to, well, what we have today?
2: And what I think happened in the late 60s was a backlash against the um, seeming social turmoil that was ushered in by universal higher education um, and and the uh, kind of nationalization of the uh, California master plan type of policies. Um, so, if you look at, say, for example, the campus protests in Berkeley, uh, the, the Reaganite backlash to those protests. Um, it, in some ways, it's it's uh, I would say interesting that you know in the early '60s you had the uh, civil rights movement that was demanding uh, equal access to. Essentially, the fruits of the uh, New Deal state on the on the basis of race, so it cannot be uh, discriminatory, um, and that gave rise to federal legislation that was essentially um, about integrating public goods that had been at that point uh, in existence uh, for uh, twenty or thirty years. Um, Whereas the same time you had the federalization of any type of higher education policy in the 1965 Higher Education Act, and then especially in the 1972 Higher Education Act, um, there was a move away from using the instruments of federal power as a, uh, a tool of integration, um, and I think that's uh, uh, why I say that the... Um, higher education policy is kind of this vanguard of backlash to the New Deal and the neoliberal turn. Uh, I think there were, as, as I was just alluding to, there were campus protests in the 60s uh, and the view that uh, public higher education was a site of social discord um, and uh, that it was dangerous for the government to be bringing that sort of uh, uh, social situation into existence.
0: One of the things we talk about a lot on this program is the push to redefine public education as a private good. If you've been listening for a while, you may remember an episode we did way back with Tressie McMillan Cottom about her book, Lower Ed, and the shift of financial risk, particularly onto low-income students and students of color. Marshall, as I'm listening to you talk about how higher ed was on the leading edge of this shift, I'm thinking about how the goal of school choice proponents is to individualize K-12 education. Our recent episode from Michigan looked at what this looks like in practice. And you know, we laugh when we hear Betsy DeVos talking about funding individual students rather than an education system. But your point is basically that higher ed got there first.
2: Yeah, I think that the logic of the individualization of higher education, the abandonment of uh, the uh, public good Ideal and the shift in the specific case of higher education finance away from a a responsibility of states to institutions to responsibility of the federal government to essentially complete the capital market that is ensure that every individual can borrow the amount of money that they need to invest in their future earnings to take the human capital logic. Exactly as you say, that is being uh, extended down the age (laughs) distribution to children. And the assumption is that uh, the uh introducing choice uh, pres- uh, so long as uh children right uh, and I, in the case of children you sort of have to admit that their families are part of the picture um can make as long as they can make the choices among alternatives then it doesn't really matter what those choices are I think Tressy has a great quote something like um there's uh, an abundance of choice but no real options and I think that really captures the uh race to the bottom type of Uh, dynamic that you get in in Michigan. Um, I have a former colleague who kind of uh, facetiously predicted that we would soon see sort of individual savings accounts to pay for preschool. Um, And actually, that has been proposed. It's not that outlandish to imagine that.
0: Okay, just to sum up what we've covered so far, for a brief moment, it looked like public higher education was going to look like our high school system, universal and publicly funded. But instead, the feds go in a very different direction, and they fund individual students. That shift away from public goods wasn't just happening in higher education. We got suburbanization to avoid school integration. And we got subsidized home loans to all white neighborhoods. And of course, we got an ideology of economic individualism that would shape pretty much the whole approach to policymaking from here on out. So Marshall, one of the things I look forward to about being without my co-host during the summer months is that one, I get to play the part of education historian, and two, I get to go down whatever intellectual rabbit hole I want with no Jack Schneider to yank me back. So I want you to indulge me here and tell us a little about public choice theory. First, just explain what it is.
2: Um, to, for a, a brief introduction to this... Um, public choice theory is a theory of the application of economic principles to political outcomes. Um, that sounds somewhat innocuous because, uh, of course, there, uh, the, the, the unity, the unity between econo- economics and politics has long been recognized well outside, uh, scholars who are, uh, Under the influence of uh, public choice. So when when a public choice people say um, the application of economic principles to politics, uh, they have in mind a very, very specific set of economic principles that is um, individual uh, rationality, um, the uh, kind of inability of the state to serve any conception of the public interest.
0: Listeners may remember the interview we did with Nancy McLean a few years ago about her book on public choice economics, Democracy in Chains. Go back and check it out if you haven't. It's episode 22. But Marshall, I want you to walk us through what public choice theory has to do with the history that you've been telling us about, this backlash against integrating public goods.
2: Origins of this theory is really in the backlash to the New Deal order. So, um, and, and I would say, especially in the uh, backlash to the New Deal order, where we should understand the civil rights movement as being an extension of the New Deal order. So um, as I was saying before, um, the Brown v. Board of Ed, and more generally that civil rights movement that uh, emerged uh, in the early 60s, well, uh, came to fruition in the early 60s. Um, was really about integrating the New Deal state that had been in existence uh, for the last for the previous twenty or thirty years, but had been segregated. Um, there was increasing pressure to to deny that continued segregation, to uh, not permit discrimination on the basis of race in access to the edifices of the public state that the New Deal created, including uh, the education system, um, and. That was a social movement that gave rise to political outcomes, integration, the Civil Rights Act, and uh, lots of Supreme Court uh, decisions that that favored uh, the uh, aims of the Civil Rights Movement. Um, And all of that historical, political, economic process was interpreted by public choice scholars as the capture of um, the state and its power in service to special interests.
0: By this point, you may be feeling a little bit, well, theoried out. I get that, but I want you to understand just a little more about why this particular topic obsesses me like it does. If you follow the debate over education reform, you know that teachers unions and parents of color are basically represented as being on opposite sides of a struggle for resources and power. Think about that epic battle that played out in New York City in 1968 when the teachers union shut down schools that the community wanted more control over. That divide still colors pretty much every conversation we have about unions and race and public education. But here's the thing that economic theory that Marshall was just talking about that underpins so much of the push to privatize public institutions, it sees urban constituents and teachers' unions as being on the same resource-consuming, special-interest side. Marshall, this is the real reason I brought you on the show. Just to ask you if I'm right about this.
2: Yeah, I think that's such a crucial point. Um, Because if you think of like the ed reform type of... uh, uh, discourse, you know, it's, they, they, they used to their advantage the idea that teachers' unions and labor power on the part of educators or uh, on the part of anybody involved in um, providing education is at odds with the interests of um, the most uh, uh, victimized uh, constituency of, the pub- of public education. Um, and so they can treat their own crusades against teachers' unions as empowering um, otherwise uh, subjugated uh, black school children. For example, um, whereas, as you say, I think the much more accurate take is that they, they, they um, view both of those as special interests ho- hostile to the public interest and the public interest is represented by white taxpayers.
0: Okay, so you've learned about human capital theory and public choice theory, about why our approach to higher education involves funding individual students. Now we're going to pivot to a subject Marshall is particularly passionate about these days, free college. He argues that free college is a civil rights agenda item. Just as Brown v. Board recognized that exclusion from public K-12 education meant exclusion from economic life, you can make a similar case today about higher education.
2: For various reasons, it has become essentially impossible to get a job unless you have some form of higher education, some form of credential. We are pushing people to get more and more higher education. This is the most flagrant sense in which, uh, say, the Obama administration uh, believed the um, skills gap narrative that it followed this theory, this human capital theory. And so their prescription for wage stagnation was uh, the expansion of. Higher education, increasing attainment for people who already had some higher education, just more, more, more effectively. Um, And that had the effect of uh, barring the labor market to anybody without that uh, access to higher education other than if you want essentially a minimum wage job.
0: Brown v. Board is relevant here too because higher education is intensely segregated. For example, students of color are far more likely to end up at for profit institutions, but that's just one piece of a segregated system.
2: Even traditional nonprofit universities and even nonprofit public university systems are enormously segregated. Um, and if we're going to decide, as I think we have already decided, uh, that higher education um, has been uh, Universalized as a credential necessary to obtain, um, then we can no longer continue to dole out that credential on the basis of race as we currently are. Um, So that is why I think that uh, uh, free public, uh, free and equal, high quality public uh, undergraduate education needs to be understood as a public good and needs to be universalized and specifically needs to be desegregated.
0: So Marshall, there are lots of free college proposals floating around out there. Is there anything that really gets at what you've been talking about?
2: If you look at what's actually proposed in them, it is more or less a... uh, replacement of uh, lost state funding for institutions, for state public university systems with federal funding, um, or partnerships, I think is, is how they all work. Um, and so the idea is that, well, if the if the federal governments pony up a lot of money then um, and, and fund institutions, then the states can be induced to kind of come back to the table where they had previously convinced themselves they did not need to be uh, significantly funding their, their state university systems. Um, and I worry that just that, without attending to um, institutional accountability, uh, credentialization, and and especially to segregation, um, will not reverse the neoliberalization of higher education um, that we have uh, suffered through in the withdrawal of state funding to begin with. So just sort of, you know, I I think it would be correct to to describe this as a lot of money was withdrawn from state funding uh, in university business models to use an annoyingly capitalistic term, changed as a result to be a more consumer-focused um, type of institution, uh, especially if public universities stopped being, you know, or tr- stopped trying to be universal to uh, citizens of their state and instead sought seek a more... Um, uh, a wealthier clientele drawing from a wider population of, of rich people outside the state um, and you know charging tuition to, or charging whatever tuition they can get people to pay as opposed to a, a, a low flat fee for basically anybody. Um, you know, that's all a consumeristic business model and I worry that sort of backing a truckload up of money to that type of higher education system um, is not actually going to reverse the uh, changes to that business model that we now know have been so harmful.
0: The occasion for having you on to the pod was my obvious fandom, but also your reaction to a previous episode that Jack and I did where this issue of free college came up. We were talking about one presidential candidate's opposition to free college, which you vehemently disagreed with, and you disagreed with Jack as well. Jack's obviously not here to defend himself, so let's bring in Mayor Pete instead. Here he is on stage at one of the recent debates explaining his opposition to free college.
3: Many of your colleagues on stage support free college.
1: You do not. Why not?
3: Sure, so college affordability is personal for us. Chasson and I have six-figure student debt. I believe in reducing student debt. It's logical to me that if you can refinance your house, you ought to be able to refinance your student debt. I also believe in free college for low- and middle-income students for whom cost could be a barrier. I just don't believe it makes sense to ask working-class families to subsidize even the children of billionaires. I think the children of the wealthiest Americans can pay at least a little bit of tuition. And while I want tuition costs to go down, I don't think we can buy down every last penny for them. Now, there's something else that doesn't get talked about in the college affordability debate. Yes, it needs to be more affordable in this country to go to college. It also needs to be more affordable in this country to not go to college. You should be able to live well, afford rent, be generous to your church and little league, whether you went to college or not. That's one of many reasons we need to raise the minimum wage to at least $15 an hour.
0: Marshall, this isn't the first time we've heard this argument.
2: So, I remember when I was an undergraduate i, I actually went to undergrad in, in the u k and so at that time they were just in the process of introducing university tuition fees now those fees have been like multiplied by ten times since when I was there only you know ten or fifteen years ago um but there that that argument that you know what, for for fifty years or however long public higher you know nationalized public higher education has existed in the u k um it has been a system in which uh the poor have subsidized the rich um and that was uh, based on the idea that the people who have higher education are the people who went to Oxford and Cambridge in the old days, you know the aristocracy or the, the professional class. Um, and everyone else, the vast majority of people who worked for a living did not get a university degree. Um, they were paying for it and that was unfair. And so introducing university tuition fees was in fact egalitarian because it would uh, it would mean finally that the you know the, the tofts, as the British call them, were paying for themselves.
0: No, you were only 19 or 20 when you found that argument compelling. But what do people like Pete Buttigieg, who are making that same case today, get wrong? What are they missing?
2: The reason why it's flawed is because the conception of who gets a university education is just very different than that in a credentialized labor market. Now, uh, the people who are being forced into the higher education system, and I use that advisedly because I think there's a disconnect between the way that sort of policy people think about the role that higher education played in their lives and the role that it actually plays in most people's lives. Um, people who have people go into this the system of higher education um, because their basically other options are closed off. they can't get a job through any other means. Um, and so they are left with in this uh, uh, privatized higher education financed, system with student debt um, that they carry with them through the rest of their lives. And it was the policy wonks who said, oh, no, that debt is fine because uh, you're going to get, as a result of having done this, you're going to get a wage increase, and that wage increase is going to make the student debt you're carrying easy to pay off. Um, And the policy wonks were just wrong about that. So we forced everybody into this pipeline, caused them to take on debt, um, and then they come out of it and are aggrieved that they didn't get what they were promised out of the system um, and then the, pol- the same policy wants are coming along and saying, "No, if you have this, then then you're privileged. And you don't deserve our sympathy. Um, think of all of the benighted people who didn't have this uh, wonderful blessing in their lives of higher education. Um, why would we want them to pay?" for you uh, to, have ha- to have had that either prospectively in the form of free college or retrospectively in the form of student debt cancellation. Um, and you know, to hear that chain of arguments coming from people who've been wrong every step of the way in interpreting the role that higher education plays um, is, I think, uh, uh, really galling. Um, it's especially galling to me right now because you know, these presidential candidates have proposed mass student debt cancellation.
0: Marshall, I'm hoping that this conversation inspires people to read your great piece in the Boston Review, A Brown v. Board for Higher Ed. But I want you to just sum up for us how free college fits in with this history you've been recounting and why the erosion of the idea of higher education as a public good matters so much.
2: Our labor market is discriminatory. Um, uh, Minority students Start out with less household wealth or less family wealth than uh, white students, and so um they're forced to, t- to rely more relatively on debt than on uh the uh, their family to pay for higher education in the first instance um, and then they have to get more of it because um because of our discriminatory labor market uh white students white graduates are hired into jobs more quickly into better paying jobs whereas in order to overcome the uh uh, issue of uh, racial disadvantage, uh, uh, minority students have to take on further degrees and go further into debt in order to get access to those same jobs. Um, and I think that dynamic is exactly why somebody like Pete Buttigieg getting up and saying, oh, well, you know, we shouldn't have uh, uh, the disadvantaged paying for the advantaged. I mean, it's just, you know, doesn't even begin to scratch the surface of, of the actual role that higher education plays in a racialized, uh, credentialized labor market in society.
0: That was Marshall Steinbaum. He's an associate professor of economics at the University of Utah and a very active presence on Twitter. You can find him there at econ underscore Marshall. And I'll be right back with another very special guest. So while Jack is off on his very lengthy academic break, I'm under strict orders not to contact him unless it's a podcasting emergency. But here's the thing. We got a response to our last episode that I think merits luring him out of summer retirement. If you remember, we had the winner of our very first graduate student research contest on, and she told us about what happens when charter schools started with progressive missions run into the buzzsaw of market-based education reform. Well, Chalkbeat reporter Matt Barnum listened to the episode and he took issue with what he saw as the conflation of, quote, market-based with, quote, test-based accountability, fighting words. As he pointed out, there are lots of folks out there who wave the market flag, think of Betsy DeVos, for example, who are not fans of closing schools on the basis of test scores. It's a key distinction these days, and I've roused Jack from his poolside cabana to help us tease it out in the weeds. If you'd like to join us there, all you have to do is go to patreon.com and become a monthly subscriber. You'll get access to our subscriber-only content, like in the weeds, as well as some reading lists. And you get the satisfaction of knowing that you're helping keep this podcast going. So I hope you'll consider becoming a Patreon subscriber. And we will be back in a few weeks with more high-quality content, or at least I'll be back.